It's time for Radio Cows, a weekly program from the Central Arkansas Library System. Every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. here on KABF 88.3 FM, we will share music from our archives, content from our resources, such as the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, and information about what's happening in the library system. We invite you to let us know what else you want to hear by contacting us at radiocows at cows.org. This program is presented by the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies and the Cows Community Outreach Department. For more information about Radio Cows, including links to resources mentioned in our segments, please visit the Butler Center's blog at butlercenter.org. If you have questions about anything you hear about on Radio Cows, please call us at 501-320-5793 or email us at radiocows at cows.org. We'd love to hear from you. Radio Cows and Cows now have a feature called Primary Sources. It focuses on people who are making a difference in Little Rock and Arkansas. Some you might have heard of and some you haven't heard of but probably want to know about. In addition to what you can hear on Radio Cows, check out cows.org slash podcasts for a free podcast of Primary Sources interviews. This week, Dr. John Kirk of the University of Arkansas at Little Rock discusses his early life and the origins of his lifelong interests in history, race, and ethnicity. My name is Griff Stockley, and for the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm interviewing Dr. John Kirk, who is the George W. Donaghy Distinguished Professor of History and director of the Joel E. Anderson Institute on Race and Ethnicity at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. John, to get us started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background. When people hear you speak, they're going to know you're not from South Arkansas. That's right. Yeah, I grew up in England. Not England, Arkansas, but England as in the United Kingdom. I grew up in the northwest of England, uh, near Manchester, which is the largest city of about half a million people, um, and a village called Whitworth, which is about 15 miles away, had about 9,000 people in it, fairly rural, right on the edges of uh, Greater Manchester and the kind of urban sprawl away from there. So I grew up in a fairly small place. And how old are you? I mean, would you give us some context uh, for when you grew up? Yeah, I was born in 1970, so I was kind of growing up and becoming conscious of the world around me in sort of the late 1970s, growing up as a teenager in the 1980s, so around that time. Okay, and what about your family? Can you tell us about your grandparents and your parents, what they did and how you grew up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, my grandparents, um, well, my uh, on my paternal side, uh, my grandfather uh, fought in World War One, um, and went away to war and lost two of his brothers in the war and came back wounded, uh, and was fairly old, older when he had my uh, father, um, so um, you know was kind of an, an older dad. 
uh, on my mom's side, uh, the family came from not that far away from us, about five, six miles away in another town. And um, she, uh, her father was a fireman. And, um, you know, they uh, both, I was the first person in our family to go to college, some first generation college graduate. They both had high school educations, but left school soon after they went to high school and uh, met one another in a carpet factory. In fact, both working there, and that's how they met. And later on, my dad worked for most of his life as a construction worker, and my mom raised me and my younger brother, who's uh, four years younger than I am. And what was life like for you in the, in the 1970s? Mm. Um, you know, it's, it was a time of uh, austerity, I guess. Um, you know, um, and throughout the 70s and particularly the 1980s, later on, um, my dad spent large parts of time unemployed. The economy wasn't particularly good. And I guess, you know, Rochdale was very much like a, um, which is the nearest town to us, about three miles away, it was pretty much like uh, a Rust Belt city you would have in the United States, kind of post-industrial place. The uh, entire Northwest had been dominated by the cotton industry and textiles and, uh, you know, had been the heart of the Industrial Revolution. And by that time, the Industrial Revolution was over and it was on the opposite end of that and it was deindustrializing pretty rapidly and going through... Lots of rapid changes, including changes in uh, in its demographics as well. You know, Britain and, and Rochdale was starting to experience uh, a growth of uh, non-white population, particularly coming from the British Commonwealth, particularly growth in the Pakistani population. I remember, you know, the 1970s was a time of growing immigration, growing diversity in the United Kingdom. And, uh, you know, the one of the landmark pieces of legislation in terms of race and ethnicity was the 1976 Race Relations Act, which sort of came about 10 years after the main legislation in the United States. And here you have the 1964 Civil Rights Act and 1965 Voting Rights Act. So Britain was about 10 years behind in that. So that was happening just at the time when I was becoming, you know, more conscious of the world around me. Okay. And your family, how did they identify themselves politically? What and and religiously too just yeah i my dad was you know both my parents were sort of working class labor supporters what i guess would translate to in the united states as blue collar democrats um typical with a sort of rust belt experience and growing up i was raised in the church of england i guess what's the you know closest uh, to the episcopal church here um, and, uh, you know, I went to Sunday school. My mom particularly, you know, took us to Sunday school, a church that was uh, close by us, but, you know, kind of benignly rigi- religious family. Not, uh, you know, it was something that people did, went to church then and uh, turned to church, but not, you know, not kind of, yeah. And socially, what what was it like in England? Was this an era of mini skirts? Or, I mean, we have an image of... England is kind of being uh, pretty progressive in in some ways. What 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 was it like socially for you? Um, yeah, I, and it was a time of change. I think when I grew up, you know, um, for me, it was a time of change in music because that was the year that punk rock was really kind of you know starting. And I, you know, seventy six, seventy seven. I was six, seven years old. So I'd begin to come conscious of the world around me. 
punk rock was starting. Uh, I think there's a new wave, a new generation of young people who were different, doing different kinds of things. You know, indie, new wave stuff was coming out. And that's the context I grew up in. And that was a kind of interesting race relations context to grow up in as well. You know, I think there was a good deal of polarization at the time. You know, there was a very conservative uh, racial kind of environment, you know, it was the time of the National Front, fascist organization and skinheads and, you know, there was racial tensions. But at the same time, I think the time I grew up, the kind of punk rock era and the new wave and indie bands that came after it very much had a backlash to that as well. And, you know, there was a strong uh, anti-racist sentiment and a strong influence of Afro-Caribbean culture in a lot of that, which I was very much aware of too. So, you know, I think it was pretty racially polarized and becoming racially conscious in the in the 70s and 80s at the time I was growing up. Okay. We were talking before we started the interview that uh, there was a Pakistani family uh, that bought a house across the street from you. Would you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, Whitworth uh, was on the very fringes of the urban areas and most of the immigration took part in the more urban areas. And I grew up in a largely all-white town. You know, there was no diversity at all. Um, and I remember the first uh, non-white family moving into uh, the village because they happened to move in directly across from where we lived. So they were right across the road from where we were. And, you know, it was kind of issues of race and ethnicity were brought right to my doorstep, as it were, you know, almost literally. Uh, so it was the first Pakistani family to move in. And, uh, you know, looking back, I guess that was pretty significant in the way that I thought about race and ethnicity. I mean, it was my first experience of that. And particularly, you know, the way that my parents responded to that, I think, conditioned, as it does at that age, the way that you contextualize the world around you, the way, the way that you deal with things. And, you know, interestingly, there's all kinds of ways, I guess, that my parents could have responded to that set of circumstances. Well, how did they respond? Uh, they responded uh, simply by treating them the same as they would any other neighbor. You know, it was just, I guess, some kind of form of colorblindness. You know, they they had a sort of, you know, uh, I guess, working class, religious sense of decency and, you know, just came at it from the approach that uh, they were just people like any other people and deserved to be treated like any other people. And, you know, they could have been hostile to them, but they weren't. They didn't necessarily, I don't think, go out of their way to be particularly friendly to them. But, you know, a kind of relationship developed with them. They interacted with them. I remember my brother, um, four years younger than I was, uh, they had a child about the same age and they played together. I remember my brother... Uh, being invited along to uh, the birthday party and th this family owned a curry place, probably one of the first curry places in Rochdale. And my brother kind of going to a birthday party there and eating Indian food for the first time, which was really exotic. I remember we were quizzing him when we got home about what it was like and what it was like to be there and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and, and they certainly experienced discrimination while they were there. Uh, another memory I have of that time is that just, uh, we lived across from them and just behind them was a working men's club, which was a sort of cornerstone of working class culture at the time, a private club where members pay money and they got cheaper beer and they had acts come in and, you know, it was kind of a social club. 
I remember that, you know, that they wouldn't allow our neighbor to join and it was clear that he was barred from being there and he wasn't welcome there. I remember uh, one night, I guess, you know, our neighbor was a smoker and wanted to buy a cig pack of cigarettes from the working men's club and they wouldn't sell them to him. You know, they wouldn't serve him, refused him service. And so he came over and asked my dad to go over and buy them for him. And my dad went over, bought cigarettes and came back and gave them to him. So, you know, it's um, I, it certainly experienced discrimination. But, uh, yeah, it was interesting the way that my parents behaved and the way that almost probably, probably more significant, the ways that they didn't behave was more significant than the ways that they did. They just didn't act as if it was an odd thing, which, you know, I guess in many ways it was. That was a portion of an interview with John Kirk, George W. Donaghy Distinguished Professor of History and Director of the Joel E. Anderson Institute on Race and Ethnicity on Primary Sources. To hear more of the interview with Dr. Kirk, please visit the Primary Sources podcast at cals.org slash podcasts. This month in Arkansas history, on September 23, 1957, the Little Rock Nine entered Central High through a side door. The mob outside, which was controlled only by the Little Rock police, became unruly when it learned of the students' entry, and the Nine had to be escorted back out of the building. In response to the disturbances, Little Rock Mayor Woodrow Mann asked the federal government for assistance, and President Eisenhower issued Executive Order 10730, sending units of the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division to Little Rock and federalizing the Arkansas National Guard. Good afternoon and thanks for joining us. I'm Rod Lorenzen with the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies, and today we're talking with Mark Christ. Mark is the Community Outreach Director for the Arkansas Historic Preservation Program. He's written and edited more than a dozen books on Arkansas history, including This Day We Marched Again, a Union Soldier's Account of His Wartime Experience in Arkansas, and The Dias Cast, which explains how Arkansas ended up on the site of the Confederacy just prior to the Civil War. Mark, welcome, and thank you for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Mark, if anyone deserves the title of Mr. Civil War of Arkansas, it probably has to be you. So tell us how you first got interested in this part of American history. Well, I, uh, I was interested in it when, when I was a, a kid. I grew up in uh, northeastern uh, Indiana, and my grandparents lived in Kentucky. So I was always constantly crossing the Mason-Dixon line. And, uh, you know, got an interest in reading about the Civil War and then, you know, going to some of the, the places where it happened. And you know, before I knew it, I was hooked. Well, there seems to be a continuing fascination with the Civil War and the discussion about it is endless, not to mention the many books and films that have come out on the subject. Why is that, do you think? I, I think to a large degree it's because it happened here, um, you know, especially in the South and places like Arkansas where uh, – Anywhere you go, there there's something that happened there. Um, yeah, I mean, and I've, I've learned more about the, the war in Arkansas over the last 25 years that I've been working with battlefield preservation. And, you know, when, when you realize, you know, when, you, when you're driving down Highway 70 between, uh, between Carlisle and Hazen, that that is a Civil War battlefield. That entire area was fought over on a, a single day in 1864. 
it it just brings an immediacy uh, to it that um, you know that other historical topics don't have. Well, the state of Arkansas has just finished a five-year commemoration of the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, and you played a large part in that. Tell us what kind of events took place and what you wanted to accomplish. Okay. Well, we uh, uh, the, the Arkansas Civil War Sesquicentennial Commission had, uh, you know, the, the overall charge was to, um, was to do a thoughtful commemoration of, you know, the, the Civil War as it happened in Arkansas. And from the uh, from the start, we developed several programs to uh, to make that happen. Uh, one one thing we did was we sanctioned events around the state. Uh, the, the The commission didn't um, didn't hold too many events, but we sanctioned more than 730 events. And uh, when, when it was all said and done, more than 375,000 people attended those events. So it was not just a uh, uh, commemorative event; it was also a really huge uh, uh, heritage tourism opportunity. Uh, probably the uh, the program the commission will be remembered for the most is going to be its historical marker uh, program. We went into it with a goal of having at least one marker in um, all 75 Arkansas counties. And it was by the skin of our teeth, but when it was done, we had a total of 144 with one in, in uh, all 75 counties. How do you think we might have a discussion about the history of the Civil War and Arkansas's role in it that includes all of our society? And is that really possible since this can be such a divisive topic? Well, it, in a lot of ways, because it is divisive, it, it really lends itself to, uh, to uh, further discussion. Uh, you, you have uh, people who are, uh, to, to this day, you know, rabidly pro-Confederate, and you have people who see the, uh, the Confederate symbolism as, as being more, uh, more supportive of slavery than, than history. And uh, by getting the various groups to, to, to speak to each other, you know, you can really kind of get to the, the core of uh, not, not just the war, but, uh, you know, how, what, what it means to um, uh, Arkansas society today. Oh, you've got a new book coming out in September from the Butler Center on the Civil War in Arkansas. Can you give us a preview? Sure. Uh, this uh, book is Competing uh, Memories, The Legacy of Arkansas Civil War. It was the uh, it's the proceedings of the the final uh, seminar that the Arkansas Civil War Sesquicentennial Commission uh, 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 sponsored at the uh, at the old State House in uh, October of uh, of 2015, and it has uh, it has seven uh, essays by uh, by several prominent uh, Arkansas historians uh, discussing. Various aspects from uh, the the economic aspect, how the war affected uh, uh, women in the state, uh, its its uh, effect on the African American population of the state. Uh, one one essay by Elliot West places Arkansas Civil War in the context of the the larger uh, uh, westward expansion of the of the country, and uh, a, a great one by Carl Moneyhan talks about. Uh, specifically about how we remember the Civil War today. Well, let's back up just a little bit to to the time just before the Civil War started. Arkansas just barely came down on the side of the Confederacy. Could you set that up for us just a little bit? Sure. Well, when when, when Lincoln was elected, uh, there there was a political crisis across the South, and Arkansas was not not separate from that. So the... uh, the people of Arkansas voted to hold a secession convention in Little Rock, and uh, the way it worked out was the uh, the majority of the uh, uh, 
folks who were elected to serve on that at that convention were actually pro-union in their uh, in their sympathies, to the point that um, you know when when it came to a vote, they voted against secession initially, and then they said they decided that was in uh, uh, April, I believe. They decided they would come back in August and, and meet again unless something came up. And well, between between those those two time periods, the uh, Confederates shelled Fort Sumter. Lincoln called for uh, uh, volunteers to put down the rebellion, and the uh, convention came back into into session and actually voted to secede at that point. Mark, are there any other observations you'd like to share with us from your many years in researching the Civil War? Really, uh, uh, what what I would urge people to do is learn about what happened right here in Arkansas. Uh, go visit the uh, visit the battlefields and the, uh, the the buildings that are associated with the war. Arkansas had uh, more than 770 offensive operations during the Civil War. Only three states saw more military activity than we had right here. So by just getting out your front door and, uh, and looking around, you can learn a lot about Arkansas Civil War history uh, just by driving through the state. Mark, thanks so much for talking with us today. Again, we've been talking with author and editor Mark Christ of Little Rock. His book, This Day We Marched Again, and The Dias Cast, were both published by the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies here at the Central Arkansas Library System. The Butler Center has published more than 50 great books on Arkansas and regional history. For more information on all of our books, please visit butlercenter.org. For Radio Cows, I'm Rod Lorenzo. This month in Arkansas history. On September 1st, 1932, Jim Skillern Porter Jr. was born in Little Rock. Porter became the leader in integrating music venues in Little Rock in the early 1960s. He produced Little Rock's first integrated seating concert and became the foremost booking agent in Arkansas for performers promoting many of the country's leading jazz artists such as Count Basie, Lionel Hampton, Dizzy Gillespie, Woody Herman, Harry James, and many others. He also operated Little Rock's first integrated country club and was influential in removing barriers to election of Jewish women to the Junior League. In the summer of 2016, Little Rock lawyer Philip Kaplan spoke at LifeQuest about Governor Sidney McMath. Over the next few weeks, we're going to share some of his talk with you. Today, we'll hear Kaplan's description of some of Sid McMath's accomplishments as governor, working to improve Arkansas's roads and medical services. Now begins the story of Sid's significant accomplishments during his four years as governor. It was Sid who was Arkansas's first progressive governor. If it had not been for those terrible father's intervening years, his accomplishments, that is Sid's accomplishments, would have been lauded as every bit as progressive for their time as Bumper's prior and Clinton years were for their time but people forgot everything that he did, so I'm going to remind you. I'll focus on five areas to the extent time will allow. They are roads, highways, and industrial growth, education, 
UAMS, rural electrification, and civil rights. In each of these areas, Sid McMath had made promises to improve the lot of all Arkansans, city and rural, black and white, hence the title of his book, Promises Kept. Well, with regard to roads, at that time, Chrysler Cars used as an advertising slogan for the durability of its vehicles that they had all passed the Arkansas mud test. Arkansas roads were in desperate condition in 1949. And during his election candidacy, Sid had the only program to raise money for highways. He proposed a bond issue even knowing the sad history of state bond defaults in the 1930s. Under his leadership, the legislature's first session under his governorship, the legislature managed to pass a $28 million general obligation bond issue for construction and maintenance during the fiscal years 48 to 52. But the voters had to approve the bond issue. He set an election for February 15, 1949, just six weeks after being inaugurated, and there was considerable opposition. But Sid gave a speech on radio the night before the election, and people overwhelmingly endorsed the bond issue. During his governorship, a total of 2,295 miles of new roads was constructed, as well as numerous permanent highway bridges. A major landmark was the construction of the first paved roads con connecting seven separate county seats with the state highway system. Prior to this, these county seats had to rely on gravel or dirt roads. Total costs exceeding 72 million, exceeded 72 million in accordance with his promise to rural Arkansas. Sid said, on some occasions, that his only regret about the massive highway program was paving that road out of Huntsville so Faubus was free to escape and travel to Little Rock. He built 12 fixed wait stations so that users could pay for highways. His administration developed a system of roadside parks and picnic tables in every county. Arkansas climbed from 47th among the states to 34th, and Chrysler and others had to abandon the Arkansas mud test. Of course, roads meant business could locate here, and bringing industry to Arkansas was another goal of the McMath administration. He reorganized the Resource and Development Commission. When shortly after he became governor, he heard that Eastman Corporation was investigating the building of a new plant outside of Texarkana. He wrote to a local businessman that if Eastman located in Arkansas, the state would build a new four-lane highway from Texarkana to the brand new plant. The state was able to, and that happened, the state was able to obtain four, 509 new and expanded industries valued at more than $209 million. Now remember, this is $1950, thereby increasing the tax base by $11 million during his administration. Now to education. In January 1949, Arkansas once again was ahead only of Mississippi in education expenditures. Thousands had only a fourth grade in their future, if you can imagine, and almost half had no high school to attend. This is 1950. The Constitution prohibited more than a 19 mil property tax for schools. 
he campaigned for two revolutionary proposals. Initiated Act I called for massive consolidation. It passed with a number of school districts shrinking from 1589, 1589 to 424 over his four years in office. Some of us who remember consolidation just within the last 10 or 15 years remember how hard it was to increase consolidation, to um, get more consolidation. It passed and the number of schools districts, as I said, shrank. This meant that for the first time, accredited elementary and high school facilities were technically available to all children of school age. The second measure to become law was a constitutional amendment removing the 19 mil ceiling and permitting localities to tax themselves as heavily as they desired. But what good would an amendment be if the districts didn't take advantage? So with legislative approval, the governor and his education commissioner traveled the state in an education caravan promoting improved education. They set out in August 1949 with 30 buses loaded with modern school equipment. It was so successful that 90% of the school districts in Arkansas voted to increase their taxes and local support jumped almost 100% from 9.7 million to 18.9 million. Remember, again, $1950. He also proposed a 100% increase in state income tax, two cents a bottle on soft drinks, a dollar a gallon on spirits, and two cents per package on cigarettes. It's hard to believe now that an elected official would even dare to make such proposals, but Sid McMath did, and there was a bitter fight in the legislature. The income tax proposal failed twice. The cigarette and liquor taxes passed in more modified form. He did strongly oppose an increase in the state sales tax from 2 to 3 percent for the reason you would just expect from him sales taxes fall hardest on those who can least afford it. He did emerge from his time as governor as a champion of public education. With regard to UAMS, Governor McMass program for an expanded medical center in Little Rock also suffered at the hands of the legislature. In re and remember, these are all democratic legislatures. Um, in rejecting his tax proposals, they severely limited his, method, his efforts to modernize Arkansas and medical care in the state. In 1949, the state's most pressing health problem was the possible loss of an A rating for the medical school because of inadequate facilities. We already had faced a severe shortage of trained medical personnel, and the loss of the medical school rating would be nothing short of catastrophic. Sid presented a bold program to construct the medical center in conjunction with the medical school and the existing state hospital. It was to be one of the finest in the country. The state doctors were enthusiastic supporters. The legislature pledged to, quote, provide funds for a proposed state med medical center, close quote. The act called for the construction of a 600-bed hospital, nursing school with dormitory, an extension of the medical school. Howard Eichenbaum, a noted Little Rock architect of Little Rock, designed the facility, which the U.S. Department of Health called the most distinguished medical center designed to date. 
but construction lagged due to a lack of funding. The 1949 appropriation, even when combined with a half-million-dollar gift by the Buchanan Estate of Texarkana, was not sufficient to complete the project. Can you imagine what Sid McMath would have done with Walmart dollars? The 1951 legislature was unwilling to appropriate the funds necessary to complete the project. As a result, the project was not completed by 1952 when he left office. The plan did save the A rating, and when ultimately completing, completed, UAMS did stand as a monument of his support for improved health care in Arkansas. He was also dedicated to improving facilities for psychiatric treatment far ahead of his time. Early in 1950, he outlined his program in an, ad, an address to the neuropsychiatric meeting at the Arkansas VA Hospital. Visiting editors of the Bulletin of the Menninger Clinic called his proposals, quote, one of the best statements of a psychiatric hospital program ever to come from a public official, close quote. He was also concerned about adequate facilities for the elderly. He said, we have to sit idly by watching longevity being add to living, and yet we have done nothing to add living to the longevity. He appointed a committee to investigate alternatives to mental institutions for caring for the elderly, which is what the only facility was then, in need for adequate shelter. When I think about the, that I may have to, I might have had to go into an elderly mental hospital. I mean, I'm reaching that age here. <laughs> in addition to the construction of the medical center, by the time he left office, 23 new hospitals were constructed. Seven additional were under construction. State Board of Health began a blood testing program, which helped reduce new cases of syphilis from 13,077 to only 3,280 over the four-year period, if you can imagine that there were that many cases. Mother and infant mortality rates were at an all-time low by uh, establishing a more rigid pro system of granting per uh, permits to midwives. Diphtheria and typhoid, two of the most dreaded diseases in the South, reached a record low of new cases by 1951, partly because of the efforts of the Public Health Service. Stay tuned over the next few weeks for more of Philip Kaplan's talk about Governor Sid McMath. On Friday, October the 7th, Arkansas Sounds is proud to present two legendary Arkansas songwriters, Waylon Holyfield and Randy Goodrum, as part of the Arkansas Sounds monthly concert series. Waylon Holyfield has written over 40 top 10 hits and 14 number one songs, such as Could I Have This Dance, Some Broken Hearts Never Mend, and many more. Wayland also wrote the state song, Arkansas, You Run Deep in Me. Randy Goodrum is a Grammy Award-nominated songwriter, a producer, and performer. Goodrum has written number one songs in each of the four decades since his first number one hit, 1978's You Needed Me. Goodrum's award-winning and chart-topping hits also include Oh Sherry, Foolish Heart, and What Are We Doing in Love, amongst many others. 
Holyfield and Goodrum performed together on Friday, October the 7th at 7 p.m. at the Cal's Ron Robinson Theater in downtown Little Rock. General admission tickets are on sale now for $15 at arkansasounds.org. People. Places. Things. Ideas. Nouns. Arkansas is literally full of nouns. Some of them are strange, but interesting. Some of them are only slightly out of the ordinary, but still very interesting. By their powers combined, we are living, some of us more than others, in Bizarre Arkansas. Hi, this is Stuart Fuel with the Central Arkansas Library System. This week, for your consideration, Ghost Lights. On a cold winter morning in 1992, a 10-year-old boy was waiting alone for his school bus on the parking lot in front of the swimming pool in the Diamond Head community not far from Hot Springs in Garland County. This boy was aware, as are so many Arkansas children, of one of the sublime pleasures of attending public school in rural and suburban Arkansas the horrendously long bus ride. This particular school bus usually arrived at 6 a.m., and the boy was the first child to arrive at his stop, so it was still well before dawn when the boy saw a single white light approaching from down the street at the far end of the parking lot. One light and no sound, like a very quiet motorcycle. But then, there were two lights. Slowly, the lights separated and entered the lot from the boy's right and left sides to meet in the middle some 50 feet from the boy, who was in awe and unable to logically explain what he was seeing. These two lights, hovering a few feet off the ground, then changed color, one to red, the other to blue. They started to rotate around each other, slowly at first, then picking up speed. Soon, they were rotating so quickly that the colors disappeared and the two lights seemed to merge back together into a single white ball of light. The light then quickly ascended to the sky and disappeared as a car approached bringing other children to wait for the bus. I'm often asked if I really believe stories of people reporting to have seen monsters in the woods or UFOs or ghosts. I usually say, truthfully enough, that I don't know. But the story I just told you is one that I absolutely know to be true because it happened to me. What I saw that morning was not an uncommon sight in Arkansas. Usually, the phenomenon is referred to as ghost lights or spook lights. And there are several places in the state with well-known and documented cases. You might have heard of the Gurdon light, the Crosset light, or even the Woodson light. 
The latter, which I admit I've never seen despite having driven Woodson Lateral Road many times at night, is often described more as a ball of fire, whereas the other two are said to be floating lantern lights, carried by the ghosts of long-dead railroad workers. In the case of the Gurdon light, the legend points to a violent murder in December of 1931. A Missouri Pacific Railroad worker named Lewis McBride got into a heated argument with his foreman, William McLean, over the amount of hours McBride was allowed to work. Company policy during the Depression prohibited overtime, and the foreman was unable to help. McBride saw fit to resolve the issue by beating McLean to death with a spike hammer. And it is William McLean's ghost that many say can be seen wandering the area, lighting his way through the darkness of death with his trusty lantern. And you'll find no shortage of locals to tell you they've seen the light. Former Gurdon Mayor Pete Randolph reported he'd seen the light many times himself. Comparisons can be made between these legends and Will of the Wisp and jack-o'-lantern staples of British mythology, both being unlucky men who carry lanterns for eternity. And similar stories exist in folk traditions of other cultures worldwide. During World War II, pilots in both theaters reported seeing balls of light in the sky that came to be known as Foo Fighters. Those lights, as with the ghost lights of Arkansas, have been explained away as light from other vehicles reflecting off of windows, swamp gas, even the ancient St. Elmo's fire. These theories, it is worth noting, are almost never offered by the people who actually witness the phenomenon. To find out more about the ghost lights of Arkansas, visit the Encyclopedia of Arkansas at encyclopediaofarkansas.net. And if you're interested, take a look at the UALR School of Mass Communications YouTube channel to find a short documentary by Marcus Lowe regarding the Gurdon Light. This month in Arkansas history. On September 3, 1913, Alan Ladd, known for his role in the movie Shane, was born in Hot Springs. He appeared in nearly 100 movies, including The Great Gatsby and This Gun for Hire. When he was four years old, he and his widowed mother were forced to leave Hot Springs after Ladd accidentally burned down their apartment house while playing with matches. This week, it's Chewing the Fat with Rex and Paul, except Rex is out of town, so Paul begins a conversation with Jan Austin, his patient spouse, whom Paul often mentions in the broadcast, usually about how he was supposed to bring her a fried pie, but ate it on the way home. We thought she might like a chance to set the record straight. Well, Jan Linda, thanks for joining us on Chewing the Fat. You've, you're replacing Rex, of course, who's 
doing banking business or something. Yes. And Are you excited? Morning, nervous? I'm very excited. Not at all nervous. Anticipatory time, certainly, Maybe. but very excited, Mr. Austin. Now, I was thinking thank about... You. Uh, thank you. I was thinking about uh, this, and you've been on several adventures with Rex and I. Yes, yes. Many did, adventures. We did the El Dorado trip that time, stopped at every museum and historic marker along the way. And places to eat. Places of course, to a eat. a few of those. Yeah. It was a very fast pace, and it couldn't have been more than about 140 degrees, about I 140, think. 140, yeah. yeah. Headed yeah. to El Dorado. And I got to ride in the back. I had that honor. And that <laughs> was that yeah. was thrilling. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, on that trip, we stopped at Fordyce at the... I think it's the Grant County Museum. Which was really great. I enjoyed that, didn't you? Yeah. That was very nice. Uh, Never knew about it. In fact, that museum is going to be hosting hometown teams in April of 2017. They'll actually open the Smithsonian exhibit, hometown teams. Well, there you go. Yeah, and they're doing some local programming around sports. You know, uh, Fordyce is the home of Bear Bryant, the Nutt Brothers, the, the family of Houston Dale, and and his brothers, they're all the nuts for all down in there. So, well, young Mister Austin would enjoy down. that immensely. I'm sure, yeah, Josh. Uh, wouldn't you? He would enjoy. Maybe I'll go. I hope so. I hope so as well. Then we went to uh, stopped at the Oil and Brine Museum. That's not yes. what they call it now. It's something else. It's Smackover Natural that was Resources. Lovely. Museum. It was lovely. Very hot. It was hot there. It was hot there as well. We had eaten lunch then, so there was that, but it was very warm. Stopped at Camden. Yes. Did the Chittister House, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is uh, fascinating. That was great. Also, no air conditioning. No air conditioning in the the house, but it was lovely. And the attic where someone was hidden was hot. Yes. But we crawled up there. We explored all of it. Yes. And then had lunch at the White House Cafe, which... Arguably Indeed. is the oldest cafe in Arkansas. There's some debate about that, but so that was good. And then on El Dorado, mm-hmm. where we stayed. What are the name of those places on the something on the square? Yes, suites on the square, something in El Dorado, where we stayed. But we stayed in this house. Uh-huh. I forget what they call it now, the Murphy House or a Mason House. I the think. Mason House. Yeah, which was lovely. It was. It was very nice. In preparation for our event that evening, which actually I think was a celebration of Ben Johnson's birthday, wasn't it? I believe it was. There Was was there not an art show? Was he was not judging? It an art show. Or... Yeah, has got yeah. a lot going on in Eldorado. Yeah. And Rex, finished, Rex and I finished off the last batch of my Pappy Van Winkle, $400 a bottle bourbon. So What's it to was, be said? Uh, it was uh, bittersweet. <laughs> yeah, it was that, <laughs> wasn't episode, it? Yeah. So anyway, that was an adventure. I remember Rex sitting on the front porch trying so much to be polite. Do you even remember that? (laughs) He had a room somewhere. We had rooms there. He was waiting on us because we were going to take him somewhere, I guess, to the event. And I I didn't realize it. And he was sitting out on the front porch, and it was about 500 degrees. (laughs) And he was just sitting there waiting. And I said, Rex, do come in. And he was, oh, well, yes, of course. And then, of course, we were... 45 minutes late because yes. we were lost. Yes. Once again, we were lost. When Once you take again. the wheel, we yeah. are lost. I thought I knew where it was. I thought you did, too. And we had no phone numbers. It was a Mm-mm. potential no, disaster. No need in being prepared. But it, it turned out well <laughs> after all, I think. <laughs> right. we, we arrived. We arrived. Uh, so, Jan, yes. do you remember the first time you went to Imboden? You know I do. You know I'm from Imboden. I do. <laughs> know that and I'm just yes I do I remember several but I do remember the first time I uh as do I I think I remember the first trip to the store 
I do too. Yeah. You were that was a very special Big time deal. for yeah. me because Dad was still yes. working behind the meat counter. Yeah. Yeah. McLeod's grocery. McLeod's grocery. You were one of the sons of town, as it were. You were <laughs> That was quite a big deal, you know, because I was allowed, actually, and I don't know if you remember, I was allowed to choose my own uh, shower gift. Right. Not everyone did that. Right. No, no, I was special. allowed to peruse the, 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 the items, and I chose I chose an electric skillet. Electric skillet, yes. It's and I was very deal. pleased. Yeah. And, and, and when I went home, I think Shelby, Papa Shelby, said, will you? I said, yes, I was asked to choose whatever I would like. K.D. McLeod said, yes. Jan Linda, go back there and get whatever you want. And I did. Yeah. And I did. I felt yeah. very special. I was hoping for a sack of feed, but you well, chose I, an electric I skillet. I couldn't carry that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the, the electric skillet was quite yeah. appropriate. Yeah, not everybody gets to do that. Usually no. you get whatever they give you. That's right. Have your, that wasn't wrapped, but that's okay. No, but that was all right because I could see what I was getting. You know, when I got out of the Navy in 77 um, uh-huh. and I went to the store, you know, I was at, uh, enrolled at ASU. Pre-me. Pre-Jan, yeah. yes. And so I went to visiting at the store and, and KD, KD McLeod. said, Paul, go over and get you one of them TVs. And so he gave me one of those little... <laughs> You know, nine-inch portable I TVs. I remember with, that TV. And I think I had it when we uh, when we were married, well, in fact. I, I, I do remember that when in fact, I met you. it may you, be in the it, attic now. It had grown aluminum foil on each antenna. <laughs> yeah, I think right, somehow there right. was a reception issue, and, and I do remember. It was very tiny. Yeah. You had a wonderful apartment with this permanent... What was it? Um, like an indoor mural. Indoor mural of Swiss winter Alps. of the, the Swiss, Swiss Alps. Alps. It was very Lovely, nice. Yeah. A little faded, perhaps, but it. And then you had. It wasn't a TV, was it? A radio that had the the psychedelic, the psychedelic little lights. lights yeah. pretty, that was that up. was a really an electronic display. It was very. I think it was a little earlier than and that. And you know actually. when I when uh, uh, they gave me the TV, uh-huh. um, Dad said, "Well, Paul." Uh, Come on back here. I'll give you something. Put that TV on. So then, in those days, they would get the raw chickens delivered in these mm-hmm. big ice-filled cardboard boxes, mm-hmm. but they were like two inches thick and yeah. coated in wax. I yeah. mean, they were seriously boxes. That. And so Dad washed one of those out and gave that to me, and I had the, a towel draped over it. And my TV set on that in Jonesboro. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. You know, I remember the chickens in the big boxes my grandparents store when I yeah. was a little kid, at, at which I did carry feed sacks, by the way. Did I you could really? do that then as a little kid. Yeah, I remember doing that in my grandmother. You actually carried a feed sack. I did. I did. And I was allowed to go out. They had chickens that they had on the side of the store, too, yeah. in a little pen. And I learned how to go out and um, feed the chickens and get the eggs. Well, Jayco's Grocery. Jayco's Grocery in Helena. Yes, yeah. What street nice. was that on? That was on on across the levee on Cherry Street. It was on Cherry. Yeah. Cherry Extended. Across the levee, yeah. yeah. And I guess if you took that road on out, you'd end up in Mariana. That's the low well, road. Well, I or... guess eventually, when all I knew about is you ended up down there somehow at the city swimming pool. I mean, my range. Y'all was didn't swim in the river. Boat and we swam in the river. No, I didn't swim in the river, Paul. We lived in the city. We were people, oh, okay. you know. Yeah. No, we didn't swim yeah. in the river. There was a facility for that. I we see. didn't, but I understand. No, we I have didn't facilities do that. in Embo. It's called the Spring River. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't do that. We now the river was there, and people went over there, and and but no. Mm-mm. <laughs> 
You're listening to Chewing the Fat with Rex and Paul on Radio Cals. This week, Rex is out of town, so Paul is having a conversation with Jan Austin, his patient spouse, about her first trip to Paul's legendary hometown of Imboden. Your first trip to Imboden, the other experience that that everyone has when they come visit us in Imboden is the train. And I remember you can... For us who were raised there, you could hear it rumbling, feel it coming, and my first night, and everyone screams, "Train!" Yeah. And here comes this train right through the front yard at two o'clock in the morning. I remember feeling something, and like, you know, I'm, I'm in this bedroom. I'm not at my house. I don't know where I am. And I wake up, and there's this rumbling, and then, and I just woke up and sat up, and everybody in the house <laughs> yelled, "Train!" And I started train. laughing because they all knew that I had freaked totally out in there. It was. It's what very is the, scary. What is the play and movie Arsenic and Old Lace? You know, with uh, Cary yeah. Grant and yeah, and they have the crazy uncle who thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt, and he just out of the blue runs down the stairs. Charge! <laughs> kind of the way that is. <laughs> That's kind of like train. All the windows rattle. It's it's real. My sister said it, she didn't. It when she went to college was the first time she realized it wasn't special to live on the railroad tracks. Well, <laughs> we were like, cool. We live, hey, yeah, we live right on the really tracks. Cool. You don't even have to walk down there. They're right there. Yeah, they were right there. The train goes by. That's fantastic. Really cool. Put the little nickels on the track. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Everybody would want that. Who wouldn't want that? <laughs> yeah. You know, I saw a picture in uh, somewhere. And y'all called that the front yard. Excuse me, but you called that the front, remember? Right. That was the front yard. Overlooked yeah. the tracks and the Which river. I thought. It was the backyard because it was the back of the house. Well, but no, front yard. the front door was to me on the opposite side of the house. Be the back door. Well, there, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Now there's a lovely deck that. Uh, it is quite lovely. Yeah. Courtesy of Paul Austin. Pretty well built. Well, and the gentleman who actually <laughs> built that thing Perhaps while you stood yeah. and and ran on occasion and found a screwdriver or something. Bob Lewis and I got out. I mean. Uh, um, Who's uh, who? Who helped us? Who was the architect on that? Joe, Joe Logri, brother Joe. Joe. Yeah, who's a serious carpenter. He brought out a surveying instrument and all of this. Those men were all serious. Uh, they were serious. They knew what they but were doing. Joe and I did some things first, and he put up the mm-hmm. boards and you know, sort of the found, beginnings of foundation. And Bob showed up. I don't know, three or four hours later. Yeah. And so he walks over and he says something like. Uh, Joe, is that a uh, calculation by the azimuth of the 75, 2 inch, by 7 <laughs> or by 8? Joe said 8. All right. He said, now, when you triangulate that, uh, do you do them offset by 7s, or is it a 28 inch by 7 riser? And it's 28. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, okay. And I thought, <laughs> I understood I not a word anything. they said. Not a but word. they had a great time. And Everyone the motivation was, you know, they love my mother. Yes. So I know they were motivated to have a nice deck for her. Well, but now what's what was the other part? The other issue is if they got it off, if it wasn't square, some of the local men would know it and they mm-hmm. would be teased unmercifully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they were just anal about getting that deck uh, square. And she was so excited. Thrilled, yeah. She and, loves uh, her deck. And it's, it's very great, nice. See the, see the uh, train. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> hear it very well. Uh, when we built that house in probably 63 or two mm-hmm. or something, uh, it was the tracks were like 20 feet or more below the house. You could just barely see the top of the train, and there were maybe one or two a day. Yeah. Well, that's changed now. There's like 15 a day, and they're all carrying coal to the uh, power plants. And then the flood of 82 flooded that washed out the track, so they raised them 20 feet. So now it's like right in the yard with us. But that's even better. You can see the conductors and wave at them. And I remember your dad being at home. 
He was trapped in that flood. Yes, Mother and the girls the had gone to Jonesboro. And couldn't get, Inboden was cut off both uh, Harding Creek and, and the river cut it off on each end of 63 and uh, flooded the town. And and Dad was growing his beard for the 100th anniversary of Inboden. Yes. So they had a beard contest. And so he was trapped up there with, with that beard. <laughs> if beard. anyone had come for him, they Lord. might have left him. <laughs> and he looked just like, I'm forgetting the guy's name, but he was like a serial killer from... He looked like Rip Van Winkle. He looked very weird. Yeah. He, but he, he won. Did. His beard was outstanding well, beard. And he had a wonderful time during the flood. I time. called him and checked diamond yes and cows floated. I said, no. He said, literally. Yeah, he said, there are weird yeah. things going on here. And he had the best seat yeah. in the house. Which you would have considered the front yard. It wasn't the front yard. <laughs> I, I think we have a photograph of him with the river almost Probably there. Probably so, because he said it was higher than he'd ever well, seen. Well, it gets, spring gets up and, and rolls there, goes down in a hurry. Well, I remember my first trip to Helena. Do you? Oh, yeah. Met Blanche, Blanche yes. Gervasini. Yes. And began my life of trying to charm her, which... Well, that's... <laughs> Was it never You always charmed Mom. Well, it was a full-time effort. I always said you were her favorite child. You had lots of books, and you'd cook for her, yeah. well, and, and you were relatively quiet. Yeah. She just thought you were her favorite <laughs> child. I'm sure of it. I learned my pie crust from her. Yes, you did. Yep. Yes, you did. Um, she was very pleased to share that with you, and, and everyone I, loved it. First time I'd been to Helena. So you took me to meet your favorite teacher, Miss Miller. Yes. Who is Vera Miller. Vera Miller, who I remember when she died— there were just unending articles in the paper and letters mm-hmm. to the editor talking about her. She influenced a lot of people. But So you took me to see her, mm-hmm. and uh, she said, well, son, what can I get you to drink? I said, well, I don't know. And she just looked at me and said, now, look, always know what you want to drink. <laughs> yes, that ma'am, I'll be, have bourbon. That good, good. good. I can Never hesitate about what you yes. want to drink. A man's supposed to know. Yes, ma'am. So. She was one of the most important women I ever had the pleasure yeah, to evidently. have as an important woman in my life. Yeah. Well, Lovely could, lady. Now, did English y'all, teacher. you know, in Imboden, we drove up and down 63. We did Cherry Street. But you guys dra- did Cherry Street. We'd go drag Cherry every Friday and every Saturday night. Were there hijinks? There had to be. <laughs> there had to be. And you could sit across from the courthouse or plop up on a, you know, the front of a truck. And on occasion, you'd see something interesting. Mm. The police station was down there as well, around the Doughboy, the statue. Right, right. And on occasion, someone's parents, I remember one night we were down there and someone's parents had to come down and they had the little kids in the pajamas. It, that wasn't probably the young man's best evening. Probably not. <laughs> but I remember a few hijinks, yes. That's Chewing the Fat with Rex and Paul, a regular feature on Radio Cows. With Rex Nelson, head of corporate communications for Simmons Bank and the writer of the food blog, Southern Fried, and Paul Austin, Executive Director of the Arkansas Humanities Council. Radio Cows is a production of the Central Arkansas Library System's Community Outreach Department, as well as its Arkansas History Department, the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies. For more information, please visit cows.org and butlercenter.org. Radio Cows was produced this week by Stuart Fuel, Rod Lorenzen, John Miller, Keeley Wooten, David Strickland, and Glenn Whaley. Voices by John Miller and Jasmine Joe. Engineering and editing by Michael Stotts and Anna Lancaster. 
Our production manager is Glenn Whaley. Our executive producers are Leanne Blackwell-Hoskin and David Strickland. For Radio Cows, I'm John Miller. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week, Friday at noon, here on KABF 88.3 Little Rock.